You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. In fact, two and a half years ago, I was at a uh, social gathering and without naming him, the CEO of a major mining company who was at that party came over, smiled and said, Rick, you have me right where you want me. Uh, we have underinvested in exploration for 10 or 12 years. We're going to have to do business with the prospect generators. We're going to have to buy the successful discoverers. And we're going to have to buy the successful discoverers at prices that even you will find amusing, uh, which I took to be a, uh, an offhanded compliment. And so that's why I wanted to talk about exploration today. I wanted to talk about exploration in, in the context of that old spaghetti western, the good, the bad, and the truly ugly. Thank you for tuning in to Mining Stock Education, and I'm your host, Bill Powers. Joining me today is Brian Lenny of JuniorStockReview.com, my friend, and Rick Rule, formerly of Sprock Global, now of Rule of Rule Investment Media. And Rick is coming on the show a little sooner than normal. We don't really don't have him on two and a half, three weeks later. But if you're an avid listener, you know that at the end of the last interview, he said he wanted to get back on my show to talk about exploration because the market is missing it. But this is the big thing for 2022. So like a little kid who couldn't wait for Christmas Day and get up in the middle of the night to go see if the presents are under the tree, I emailed Rick's assistant and said, can we do a sooner interview than 30 days or six weeks out? So he joins me again. Rick, thanks for coming on the show. Could you lay out what you want to elaborate on? You say exploration is the thing for 2022 and the market is missing it. What do you mean here? I think that's right. Uh, and thank you for having me back, by the way. It's delightful to visit with uh, both of you. Uh, I get sort of, uh, I get two interviews uh, for the price of uh, one hour, which is a wonderful use of my time. Um, you know, what's dominated uh, the mining market, uh, I, I think, in the last 24 to 36 months has been, in effect, optionality plays. Uh, the idea that if the gold price is going to go up, the gold equities are going to go up more. The silver price is going to go up, the silver uh, equities are going to go up more. Um, and that's normally how these markets lead. Uh, but where they go from that in a bull market uh, often is, in effect, down market. But to exploration, uh, people have not been paying attention to exploration fundamentals. They have certainly been paying attention to exploration narratives. You know, you're watching the Bay Street fraud machines and the Howe Street fraud machines kick out reams of five cent paper, spend two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollars on financial public relations, a dollar ninety eight on drilling, uh, call it an exploration stock, drive a five cent stock to twenty five cents, and then blow the stock off. That's not really exploration, except for maybe you know, exploring the wallets uh, of gullible speculators south of the border. Uh, but I want to talk about real exploration. I want to talk about the fact that uh, uh, society, by my estimation, has underinvested in uh, mineral exploration for 30 years. Uh, either underinvested or malinvested for 30 years. Uh, there has been a, a lot of exploration expenditure in the period, as an example, 2000 to 2011. But too much of it, particularly that which originated uh, in Canada, uh, wasn't really exploring for minerals as much as it was exploring for news releases. Uh, picking up some tired shop-worn property that had failed in the last three bull markets and twinning or confirming the one good hole that that property developed over three decades, trying to jitney a 25 cent stock to 75 cents. Don't get me wrong. I don't mind stocks going up. Uh, I, I sort of like it. Uh, but I want them uh, to go up as a consequence of having the ability to generate wealth. One consequence uh, after that digression, uh, one consequence of the underinvestment in exploration for the last 30 years is that the industry cupboards uh, in terms of development projects and advanced exploration projects are empty, really, truly empty. The pipelines, the exploration pipelines and the development pipelines at companies from, uh, let's say, as large as Barrick, uh, all the way down to amalgamated moose pasture mines, uh, that hypothetical Vancouver Junior that I always trot out quizzically, are empty. And the consequence of that is that a nice discovery, a nice drill hole 
where you pull in the third dimension, it becomes uh, obvious to the market that the deposit is ore grade uh, is beginning to develop uh, or, or generate, pardon me, absolutely spectacular market performance. And I think that you're going to see some takeovers occur at really eye-popping premiums because the industry has no choice. When the industry looks at their exploration cupboard, what they see is a very bare cupboard. Uh, in fact, two and a half years ago, I was at a uh, social gathering and without naming him, the CEO of a major mining company who was at that party came over, smiled and said, Rick, you have me right where you want me. Uh, we have underinvested in exploration for 10 or 12 years. We're going to have to do business with the prospect generators. We're going to have to buy the successful discoverers. And we're going to have to buy the successful discoverers at prices that even you will find amusing, uh, which I took to be a, uh, an offhanded compliment. And so that's why I wanted to talk about exploration today. I wanted to talk about exploration in, in the context of that old spaghetti Western, the good, the bad, and the truly ugly, because they're all pleasant. So with that lead in, you take me where you want to go. I'll know how to answer the questions. Brian, I have some specific questions about uh, what to look for in an exploration play. But did you have any questions about, you know, the big picture that Rick kind of laid out there that you might want to throw out to Rick? Projecting my downside risk is a major part of my investment strategy. Um, for companies with existing discoveries or economic studies, I think it's fairly straightforward how you put together uh, a value proposition and compare it against to the price. Uh, when it comes to exploration, I think the biggest question for me um, comes to, in your view, how can investors effectively gauge and compare the value of a pre-discovery uh, exploration company? Well, the first thing I think is to... Um look at the balance sheet uh, and, and look at the share structure. Uh, too often these days with mining in vogue, people print themselves 10 million shares at a nickel uh, and then seek to do a seed round incenting investors at 20 cents. Uh, that's truly insane. Uh, the market goes absolutely crazy if I charge a 1.5% management fee and 20% of profits over uh, an 8% hurdle. And these promoters are marking up their paper uh, fourfold overnight and calling that an incentive. Uh, when you have a situation like that, uh, that share structure is really, truly, obviously structured for a pump and dump. Uh, the insiders don't need to enjoy any exploration success. They just have to find a bunch of dupes. Uh, and if you look at the income statement, too, before you even worry about the geology, if you, if you look at the income statement, uh, we saw a company not too long ago uh, that had a, a financial public relations budget where they had spent almost a million dollars in the last 12 months. And interestingly, they had spent less than $200,000 on exploration. Now, is this an exploration company? I don't think so. Staying with the income statement, uh, and this is aged data going back about 10 years. We had a young intern, uh, <laughs> that's American English for slave, uh, working for Sprott <laughs> for us about 10 years ago. Uh, and I asked this young man to pull uh, balance sheets and income statements for 25 TSXV juniors uh, at random uh, and look at the income statements and the balance sheets and tell me what he saw. Uh, he asked me what I was looking for. And I said, that's too easy. You got to figure it out for yourself. I actually wasn't looking for anything. I was just trying to see how creative this young guy was. And he called me about five, six days later. He says, Rick, I think I got it. I said, oh, interesting. What do you think you got? The uh, And 25 is maybe not a representative sample uh, of the TSXV. There's probably a thousand uh, would-be mining companies on the TXV. But the median junior of the 25 that he pulled spent in excess of 60% of the capital raised on general and administrative expense. Now, if the three of us formed an exploration company uh, and we uh, staked an idea, had a good idea, uh, brought in the major as a joint venture, they would probably allow us between 12 and 15% uh, of the budget for management and administration, while the median on the TSXV uh, for these 25 companies sampled, exceeded 60%. So when you see 
likely more than half of the issuers on the TSXV spending in excess of 30% of the capital raised on an annual basis, uh, it, it really becomes pretty easy to narrow the field without having to look at one drill hole or one resume. All you have to do is look at the trailing financials. Now, that doesn't mean that a well-constructed scam with a big PR budget can't make you some money uh, if you trade a narrative as opposed to worrying too much about drill holes uh, for the right type of speculator. I don't happen to be that guy. Uh, but for the right kind of speculator, uh, trading the greater fool theory has been a time-tested uh, Vancouver way to make money. If you're completely cynical uh, and you understand the nature of the game, uh, you know I get it. You can cast your role as sort of co-perpetrator uh, as opposed to victim. But it's not the same as exploration. The second thing that I think you need to do to make money in exploration and to limit your risk is to understand the game for what it is. When you walk around an investment conference, and hopefully someday we'll be able to walk around them physically again rather than virtually, but when you walk around an investment conference, the pitch that you hear from booth to booth to booth to booth to booth is always the same. This property I got is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Never mind that they paid $25,000 for it and they have a $10 million market cap. Uh, but this property is the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, a hundred years ago, it was discovered by old, you know, sourdough slim. And if his mule hadn't have died, he'd have been a billionaire. You know, it's just this property is just the greatest thing since sliced bread. They try and make the pitch an asset pitch. But that's not what exploration is. Uh, exploration is intellectual capital business. The resumes of the earth scientists uh, and their ability to deal intelligently with the task at hand is where the real asset base is. When I went to university, I was taught in economic geology that one in 3,000 mineralized anomalies became a mine. So the median probability of success on the TSXV for exploration is one in 3,000. The idea that you take a one in 3,000 chance for a 10 to 1 return makes the BC lottery look like a really good deal. Uh, by understanding that you aren't in an asset-intensive business at the beginning, that you're in an intellectual capital business, you will do much better. If you understand that the process of, of exploration is the same as the process of discovering a molecule in biotechnology uh, or an algorithm, uh, it is really an intellectual process where you answer unanswered questions. And to begin that process, you need to ask the management team what the unanswered question is. In other words, what riddle associated with the property? How are you adding knowledge to the investment community's understanding of the property at hand? How did you develop your thesis? Was your thesis one that was marketable and convenient? Uh, or was it, in fact, um, the most valid thesis available with the facts at hand? How do you propose to test the thesis uh, efficiently? And after you've had the beginnings of that discussion, Brian, uh, then you need to ask the guy a very pointed question, guy or gal these days. Why should I care what you think? Show me something in your resume that suggests to me that you're the right one to ask this question. You know, if somebody comes to you, Brian, and they say that they've been a success in mining because they've operated a gold mine in Archean terrain in French-speaking Peru, but the task at hand is exploring rather than operating for copper gold porphyries in 15 million year old accreted terrain rather than 2 billion year old Archean terrain. In Spanish speaking Peru, uh, what you have is a mismatch between task and capability. While that person may have been a success in mining, their success is completely irrelevant to the task at hand. Understanding that the nature of success and exploration is answering a series of unanswered questions, the first thing that you need to do is see how the resumes of the people who ask the question qualify them to ask a question on your behalf. And then the second thing is, of course, then to ask them what the question is, how they evolve the question. In 30 years of applying this technique, to uh, interrogating early stage companies, probably 80% of the companies that I've asked the question to, tell me the most important unanswered question. Tell me how you developed the question and tell me how you propose to answer it. Probably 80% of the time, the manager said, hmm, I've never thought of it that way. 
which is to say that their real plan was to come up with a good enough story to get paid for 18 months, uh, which is really very handy. If there's a thousand companies on the TSXV, you can't, you can't uh, follow them all. So the idea that the industry gives you the ability to throw 800 of them away uh, and focus on the remaining 200, and usually uh, a cursory glance uh, at the income statement and the balance sheet for two, two trailing years allows you to throw away uh, 50% of the remaining 20%, getting yourself down to 100 issuers, means only when you have reduced the playing field by 90%, do you actually have to start doing any work? Uh, and I think that's fairly attractive. I'm sorry for that long-winded mo uh, monologue, but uh, now we probably don't have to answer that kind of question. Anymore. Yeah, you have so, you laid out so many things, Rick. I have so many follow-up questions, uh, Brian. <laughs> if I could just jump in, Rick. So you've you've told me, and I can't remember if it was on recording or after we stopped recording. You told me this, but when you're looking at an early stage exploration play, you have a Rolodex. Virtually nobody that's listening to this podcast or YouTube channel has. Okay, so you have a competitive advantage there. So when you have the executive and he answers your questions satisfactorily and you say, okay, it passes the initial smell tests, then you're gonna go through your Rolodex of geologists. But as you've told me, you're not just gonna go to any geologist, you're gonna go to a geologist that is specific, has knowledge specific to that type of deposit that they're exploring for. So there's, there's so much specific expertise that you can tap into to then critique this exploration thesis that could be, set forth to you by an honest promoter with the, the best geological team and you say it all smells good. Well, none of my listeners have that ability. So my question to you is, how can they critique the geological thesis for an exploration company when they're not a geologist and they don't have your Rolodex? Let's assume that they don't have as many scars as me. Uh, and the consequence of that is that I have a definable competitive advantage over them. That's true. But uh, as a speculator, you don't have to be the best. Uh, you just have to be better than the competition. The, the truth is that the process that I just described to you is simple enough to do, and so few people do it, that your listeners, irrespective of whether they have access to my Rolodex or not, will outcompete 95% of their contemporaries simply because they show up. The analogy I give is a 68-year-old bald fat guy like me can win the 100-meter dash if I'm the only guy that shows up to run. If your listeners employ this same technique and all of their competition employs the more normal technique, which has got a hunch, bet a bunch, your listeners are going to win. I do something else, Bill, and I, I shouldn't let this out. On the other hand, maybe the issuers aren't listening to this broadcast. One thing I always do, if I can, is if I've reviewed the company's material before I'm interrogating the management team, I ask them a couple questions that I know the answer to, where it would seem to be in their short-term advantage to lie to me. And I see if they lie. Because if they lie, I can't trust their information. And if I don't have any information, I can't speculate. My whole game, uh, if I'm spending a day interrogating 10 companies, is to make nine of them go in the trash can. It's the ones that keep bumping, popping back out of the trash can, refusing to get thrown away uh, that you have to pay attention to. Uh, your first job, you know, all of your uh, subscribers are looking for opportunity. Brian describes himself as risk averse. So the first thing that your customers need to do, your listeners need to do, is become more like Brian. Uh, don't worry about this fear of missing out is the height of stupidity. Don't worry about missing something that goes up. That's what's called an error of omission. It's money that you didn't make. Making a mistake is an error of commission, where the money comes out of your pocket and goes to money heaven. Errors of commission are much worse than errors of commission. So your first thing to do is take 10 companies and make nine of them go to company heaven. Then you can start doing the work. Arcana Silver is on the verge of bringing the world's highest grade silver mine into production. The Revenue Virginia's mine in Colorado has proven and probable silver reserves grading nearly 37 ounces per ton silver, with all-in sustaining production costs of only $8 per ounce of silver. The mine is fully funded and permitted with infrastructure already in place and has announced production will commence in 2021. Achieving successful production should result in a significant upward share price re-rating on the Lassonde curve. Arcana trades under the ticker A. 
AUN in Toronto and AUNFF in New York. To learn more, go to arcana.com. That's A-U-R-C-A-N-A.com. As far as I'm concerned, there are uh, three broad categories of exploration speculation, maybe four, that work. The one that's worked for mo- the best for me is very, very boring and takes a very long time. And, and most speculators don't have the patience for it. That's prospect generation. We've talked a bit about prospect generation before, but for your new listeners, prospect generators are the type of company that uses their uh, technical and commercial acumen to develop exploration uh, theories, stake or acquire ground to test the theory on, and then farm out the heavy lifting, the exploration expenditure and the drilling to another company uh, for a carried interest. In other words, understanding that they are pure brain power businesses and leaving the heavy lifting to others. If you follow the thesis arithmetically that one in 3,000 anomalies becomes a mine, and I've heard numbers much greater than that. I've heard one in 10,000 actually. But if you if you follow the basic math that one in 3,000 mineralized anomalies becomes a mine, you understand that uh, bringing in a joint venture partner to take a one in 3,000 risk on your behalf rather than issuing your own shares and preserving your proportional share in the intellectual capital in the company, which is where the real value in an intellectual, uh, in an in a intellectual property business is, while boring, is statistically the single best way to play the game if you can manage your time preference, which many speculators can't. I have participated now, uh, and to be honest, I forget the exact number, but something like 65 prospect generators in 35 years of speculating and exploration. Uh, and, and amazingly, in, in a field where the expectation of success is one in 3,000, I have participated now in 23 economic discoveries and 22 takeovers. So my experience has been uh, uh, a 33 or 34% success rate in a business where my gross expectation would have been one in 3,000. I think that's a two standard deviation improvement in expected return. You know, it's been a while since I did that kind of math. Uh, Suffice it to say, it's a pretty amazing statistic. Now, it bores the hell out of people. Uh, So many people don't want to do it. Uh, There are some prospect generators, as an example, like EMX, which I have now held for 22 years. it's worthy to note that because they don't have to dilute three times in that 22 years, it's had a 10 for one run. (laughs) So there's been plenty of opportunity in the interim. Probably uh, the technique that is more suited to most speculators is the discovery play, uh, which is to say you have a mineralized anomaly where you have strike and you have width on surface, but you don't have the third dimension. You don't have a drill hole and somebody sticks a drill hole in it. Uh, And that drill hole gives you an amazing piece of data. Very often on a successful drill hole, the stock will, let's say, triple. uh, And people who don't understand that value has been created rebel at the fact that what was a dollar stock becomes a $3 stock. A good discovery is almost always substantially cheaper at $3 than it was at a dollar because you have that third dimension. Uh, you have the beginnings uh, of value. Most people prefer to play the game anticipating that drill hole, which is to say drill hole speculation. In other words, many people look at that dollar stock and say, if they hit it, this will be a $3 or $4 stock. So they buy uh, substantially before the drill hole. This is extraordinarily risky because this uh, subjects you to that one in 3000 probability thing. What you need to understand with a good deposit, uh, and I define a good deposit as one that has at least medium grade, uh, but the possibility for substantial tonnage, uh, is that the first run that you see after the initial drill hole uh, is probably still uh, buying knowledge at a wholesale level. I've seen several circumstances where, yes, the stock went from 50 cents or 60 cents to a dollar to two or three dollars. And I felt bad about not having the courage to buy it before it ran. 
but uh, good news followed good news, followed good news, followed good news. Uh, the managements kept answering successively more valuable unanswered questions. And the stock went from, say, $2 to $15 or $20. Um, the easy money actually was made after the run-up following that initial drill hole. Um, the third technique is a sub rosa technique. Uh, and to be honest with you, I manage too much money now to do this. I don't have the time, but it used to be absolutely a wonderful way to, for me to make money. It was popularized uh, by John Kaiser as the bottom fish technique. You look for a high quality team of people uh, or uh, a sort of a, a mining house, a discovery group or somebody like that. And you look for their inactive company, the shell that they're reorganizing. It has no property in it. It has no active promotion. Nothing's going on. If you look at the, uh, the price chart over the last two years, it has the trajectory of a brick thrown off a bridge. You know, it's declined from 45 cents to 5 cents. But you see it start to flatten out, interestingly. Nothing is going on, but the descent to zero stops. Maybe the officers and directors are loaning it some money to stay alive. This is an age-old technique where you put company, where you put money into the company on a shadow uh, basis, and you actually scare the market because they see themselves being behind your debt. And then all of a sudden, you put a property in the company, convert the debt to equity. By the way, by Canadian law, that becomes free trading equity, not restricted equity. And it's off to the races. Uh, and there is a, a group of Canadian speculators who does nothing but look for inactive companies that are in the control of people who know how to make stocks go up. Uh, bottom fishing. Most people uh, want the trifecta. They want the statistical superiority of the prospect generating business model. And they want the sex associated with a successful drill hole. And they want to buy it for a nickel. Uh, that's very much like wanting a nasty weekend with all the women from Victoria's Secret. You know, uh, you can want it, but you ain't going to get it. Uh, it's important, I think, that you think in terms of what you can have to guide your uh, expectations and exploration. Brian, follow up. Uh, yeah, is there any particular metal or deposit or and or deposit type that you're particularly interested in this next you know expiration cycle? Not for me. Okay. Uh, you know, you know, I've uh, I've made money in sand and gravel. Uh, I'm completely agnostic uh, as to how I make money. I'm very fond of what I call tier one deposits. I think if you're going to take the risk inherent in exploration, uh, because the risks are enormous, the potential rewards should be enormous too. Too many times I've seen guys look for small mines, and unfortunately, occasionally they succeed. Uh, everything that can go wrong with a big mine can go wrong with a small mine, but a small mine can never make you big money. And the idea that I would take big risk for small rewards doesn't work for me. So my own definition of a tier one deposit is $10 billion or more in recoverable in situ resource. Uh, pro forma stage, which is to say PEA stage or target stage, um, top decile return on capital employed and uh, best quartile uh, all in sustaining cost. That is to say, a deposit that would get the attention of uh, a Barrick, a Newmont, a BHP, a Rio. The half million ounce gold deposit is fun. You know, uh, it makes you feel warm and fuzzy and all that kind of thing. But taking a one in 3,000 chance to find a half a million ounce deposit is not a good juxtaposition of risk to reward. Uh, as to materials, there are materials that I think will do better in price over the next five years than others. But I'm much more interested in the conjunction of the technical acumen of the management team and the task at hand. If you give me uh, a big, high-grade lead-zinc deposit, I'm a happy camper. Copper works for me. Tin works for me. Gold works for me. Silver works for me. Uranium works for me. It's all good. All good.
Rick, what about new exploration methods like Nevada for gold mining today isn't what it was a long time ago, but then new Very exploration true. methods brought forth all these 40 million ounce deposits. If a team comes to you and says, Rick, we've got a new way, we're going to test the groundwater or we're going to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, how do you vet that? I was intrigued by the groundwater idea. <laughs> uh, I was. Uh, that sounded like a hell of an idea. And it came to me from John Kaiser, who I think is a very, very, very smart guy. Um, I went to my friends at Newmont and passed it by them. Uh, they said, we've tried it. Swing and a miss, strike one. I didn't like that answer. So I went to my friends at Barrick uh, and I passed it by them. They said, we've tried it. Didn't work for us. Swing and a miss. Strike two. So I decided that I would come down the quality trail to more adventurous uh, exploration types. And I won't tell you the um, consulting firm that I went to see for fear of costing them business. I said, talk to me about, uh, you know, trace elements of gold or arsenic or whatever you want in groundwater. He says, oh, yeah, sexy idea. Never worked for us. Uh, I'm not uh, an expert in processor technology. Uh, most of the deposits that we are still working on in Nevada were initially discovered because geologists tripped over them, which is to say they outcropped. Now, what we're mining today are, are the deep roots, the extension of what were often oxide surface deposits discovered in the 70s and the early 80s. The new discoveries that we're going to make in Nevada are unfortunately going to be in the pediment. Uh, they're going to be undercover. Because a lot of guys have walked through those resistive outcrops <laughs> in Northeast Nevada. And assuming that you're smarter uh, than Andy Wallace and all those wonderful explorationists that came by you, that came before you, is a horrifically bad bet. Uh, the idea that you're going to stumble on a resistive outcrop that 40 years of good hard work and geos have missed ain't going to happen. Uh, but uh, two things. Uh, there are still uh, unstaked aster imagery an anomalies in Nevada. Aster imagery is doing photospectral analysis uh, of uh, exposed terrain, desert terrain, works well in Nevada, from space using Landsat data uh, and looking for clay alteration, kaolin alteration, other forms of uh, alteration, and using analogs from districts that produce to look for the type of alteration event that's indicative to various minerals. Uh, uh, Morgan Poliquin from Almaden Minerals uh, applied that technology uh, in Nevada about 10 years ago and came up with five unstaked low sulfidation uh, gold systems in Nevada, uh, which is pretty amazing. Uh, you know, fairly low tenor. There was not enough alteration, not enough fluid inclusion, not enough quartz, frankly, uh, to give you a nice, lovely, resistive ridge or outcrop. But vuggy, you know, vuggy silica, all the things that you would look for uh, in that kind of mineralization, spotted from space. Uh, it's unlikely that those deposits will be large in Nevada. It's very likely, however, that using aster imagery rather than in Nevada, which has been combed very thoroughly, uh, if one was to use it as an example in the Tethian metallogenic belt, uh, that belt of rocks that goes from basically from Turkey to Mongolia uh, and hasn't been explored much of it by means more sophisticated than a pick and a mule, uh, I suspect that there will be a dozen 10 million ounce deposits discovered in the Tethian in the next 30 years, uh, many of them uh, with uh, aster imagery. In the junior uh, resource sector, the learning process never stops, uh, especially for <laughs> non-geologists. Um, understanding the various deposit types um, and the terrains in which they're located um, can be a big task. Um, with that said, in your view, is there a way that investors can best focus their attention uh, to tilt the odds in their favor? People? Yeah, people. Um, if uh, my friend Bob Quartermain says, I have an exploration idea. Um, I don't ask him where. <laughs> I ask him <laughs> what, you know. <laughs> you know, Bob, you've given me one idea a year for, four, for, ten, for 40 years. That is to say four ideas over 40 years, and they've all been 10 baggers. What do you have in mind, you know? <laughs> where do I send the money? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, people are important, you know, 
Doug Kerwin, as an example, is one of the few explorationists that seems to have equal facility in tertiary volcanics, in Archean terrain, in the Proterozoic. He seems to be uh, equally at home looking for massive sulfide nickel uh, or oxidized gold. But most guys can't do that. Uh, for most people, you need to very closely tie the intellectual challenge with the resume. Uh, you know, it's very important. Occasionally, you get a financier like Robert Friedland, who is actually surprisingly knowledgeable about geology. If you spend some time with him and pick his brain, what you find out is that although he disclaims any knowledge of geology, that's a patent untruth. But what he is really good at, and actually what I'm pretty good at, is consuming geologists, uh, understanding what they're good at, understanding what separates the great ones from the good ones, and understanding, too, uh, how to uh, incentivize uh, and motivate those truly spectacular geologists. So you either have to hang with a financier like a Lucas Lundin, who is also a great consumer of geologists, or Robert Friedland, who is a great consumer of geologists, or you have to hang out uh, with some pretty good geologists. Well, understand that hanging out with good geologists means that you very seldom get it in a nickel. That's not the way the game works. There's a premium associated with these people who are serially successful. So if what you want is to play a game where a nickel stock goes to 30 cents, understand that geology is much less important. Uh, having the ability to understand an unfolding fraud is what you need to understand. So on the idea of promotion, Rick, uh, Brian brought up valuation. So you get, a, you get a hot district and then that company explodes on marketing, speculation, and yes, some good holes. Everybody then is able to raise money in that district. They spend money on marketing. They announced massive drill programs. And before you know it, every Explorico has 100, 150 million market cap, whereas two yeah. years ago, they were all at 10 or 15 million. How, yeah. how do you value something in that scenario? Is it all relative <laughs> to the market I, cap of the next guy? No, I ignore it. You ignore it. So you just stay I mean, away from that? Ultimately, there's a technical term for that. It's bullshit. Um, if I'm, let's say, as an example, that somebody drilled a nice drill hole in a real sexy place, you know, the Abitibi uh, or northeast, northwestern BC or Nevada, someplace that, you know, gets corporate finance guys horny, you know, and somebody does tag along staking. Uh, they're 15 miles away, but they happen to be barely in the same political jurisdiction. So they call it an area play. Uh, they raise $30 million from successively more stupid people. Uh, and now they have $150 million market cap, and I'm supposed to value this company. So, Bill, let's just let's pick on you for a while. Let's say this is your company, and you have acquired this ground from a prospector, and you've given this prospector, I don't know, a 3% override in the unlikely event that you actually turn up something economic, and you've paid them $200,000. You've raised $30 million and your market cap is $150 million. So I say, hey, Bill, uh, before we talk about how high your stock could go, let's talk about how low it could go. What's it worth? Uh, tell me what this piece of moose pad, uh, pardon me, this mineral exploration project that you have, uh, tell me about that. Don't, don't tell me the market capitalization of the company next door. Tell me how much cash you could raise by selling it to another exploration company. I noticed that you just paid a quarter million dollars for it four months ago. I somehow doubt it's worth $100 million. But if it is, tell me why and tell me to who you could sell it to. And by the way, give me their phone number so I can check whether what you're telling me is the truth. Oh, oh, you you couldn't sell it for 250000 Maybe you could sell it for $250,000. let us say you could sell it for a million dollars because it was in a hot area play now. Well, then the valuation becomes pretty simple. You got $30 million in cash. That's probably worth $30 million, although $10 million of that will go away this year. So arguably that $30 million is worth twenty. And you got a piece of moose patch oh, mineral exploration project that's worth a million dollars. So I've come up with $31 million in a $150 million market capitalization package. Two things I can do. I can pray that the next dot buyer is dumber than me. In other words, that the 150 million market cap goes to 450 million market cap, which I've seen happen hundreds of times. 
or more likely uh, the stock uh, over two or three years goes to its intrinsic value, which is to say zero. Uh, door B is much more probable, much more probable, uh, 2,999 to one times more probable than door A. <laughs> uh, people, have a fear, people have a fear of missing out. Uh, and that fear of missing out is really the height of stupidity. Silver One Resources is an exploration and development company backed by strategic investors Eric Sprott and SSR Mining. At Silver One's Candelaria Mine Project in Nevada, there is already a historic resource estimated at 127 million ounces of silver, which Silver One is developing and advancing. The company's Phoenix Silver Project, located within the Arizona Silver Belt, is an early-stage exploration project on which native silver vein fragments have been discovered near surface. One grab sample assay an astounding 14,688 ounces per ton. Yes, that's right, ounces, not grams. Silver One has tremendous exploration potential, is extremely leveraged to the price of silver, and is cashed up and poised to increase shareholder value. Silver One trades in New York under the ticker SLVRF and in Toronto under the ticker SVE. To learn more, go to silverone.com. That's silverone.com. Rick, you mentioned how you called somebody at Newmont, you called somebody at Barrick, and then when you're asking about the valuation, so again, here's something where maybe the average listener can't do. So you want to get a value, you want to get a valuation. So you got to ask what, what do the majors or the potential suitors, potential buyers, what do they think about it? How can the little guy obtain that information? Call the company, say, how much you well, no, not Newmont. Talk to this little nothing nowhere junior with $150 million market capitalization. Say, uh, how much did you pay for the property uh, and when? And what do you think you could sell it for in cash today? In other words, what's it worth? Don't tell me right now. You can tell me in 10 minutes how you know, you're going to discover the greatest deposit in the history of mankind. And I'm all ears for that. Uh, but tell me right now, uh, what the property's worth, because in addition to knowing about my upside, I want to know about my downside. And your subscriber doesn't have to get this right, Bill. He just has to get it more right than the 10,000 morons that he's competing with. And there's that knowledge arbitrage that you've taught me about. <laughs> okay, so we will never get it right. <laughs> Rick, we have a we have a a, a discovery in the precious metals, we're going to throw out copper or, or some huge, yeah. big nickel, massive sulfide deposit, which can be billions of dollars. But you got yeah. a precious metals deposit. It's over a billion dollar market cap. No resource for the average guy. Just stay away from something like that. How do you view something like that? If the average guy does not have access to somebody who can construct a, a drill hole cross-section to give you the rudimentary metrics of the discovery. In other words, to know uh, the size of the prize, the unanswered question, that speculator has no business in that stock. Remember that we described the process of exploration as answering a series of unanswered questions. So it's absolutely fair to say to the management team of this billion-dollar market cap company, tell me why your company is a billion dollars, and don't tell me because the company next door is $2 billion. Tell me why your asset has a market valuation of a billion dollars. And take notes. Uh, it might be that the information that you get is very valuable in your own due diligence. Uh, it, it might be that uh, I, I've had guys like Ross Beatty say to me when they had billion-dollar market caps, uh, the indicated valuation of my project in my own mind at the current target size is between 400 and $450 million. But I think with 12 drill holes that I will get a better sense uh, of uh, strike extent uh, and I'll get a, a better sense of depth and I'll get a better sense of uh, deposition within the deposit. And, and I think that I may, with these 12 drill holes, justify uh, a market cap of a billion four or a billion five. And more importantly, I may set myself up 
for uh, an unanswered question that could give me a market cap of three billion or three and a half billion. You don't have to, in the course of this thing, buy quarters for nickels, right? Uh, you don't necessarily have to get uh, $150 million worth of product for $75 million. What you do have to do is understand uh, the downside in relation to the upside. And you have to make sure that the uh, question that the company is asking themselves, the unanswered question, is one that's predicated in fact and matters. After the discovery hole, you do your due diligence. So it's a lower risk entry. Yeah, you didn't get it at 20 cents, but you're coming in at a buck 25 or 80 cents. Then when you're doing your due diligence at that point, are you asking yourself, okay, how good are these guys at negotiating? How good are these guys at, yes, delineating a resource, but also maximizing mystery? Because as the saying goes, uh, people pay for mystery, but they forget about history when it comes time to negotiating with the major minor. Are you kind of doing an assessment of the psyche and the ability of management to maximize value, even speculative value when they sell the project? That's icing on the cake for me. Uh, to the extent that I'm doing business with a Clive Johnson uh, or a Ross Beatty uh, or a Robert Friedland, uh, and I know that I am unlikely to be victimized by the major because my promoter has been there before, done that before, and has the ability to raise enough money that he or she will never get bet over. That's icing on the cake, but I don't give it any value. Uh, there are a whole bunch of subjectives in addition to the objective. And what you describe is the subjective. Similarly, with promotional acumen, I'll pay a premium for promotional acumen, but I don't consider it to be value. Uh, I don't consider promotional acumen uh, to be of uh, direct benefit to me because I'm really not a trader. Uh, I, I, I enter into these speculations with the viewpoint that I'll own the stock for as long as it takes to answer the unanswered question, which is frequently 18 months. If I'm successful, uh, in other words, if I get a yes answer, that usually provokes another an unanswered question, which might take another 18 months. And if I'm successful, that provokes another unanswered question, which might take another 18 months. So really, in order to have any right to a 10-bagger or a 15-bagger, in my own mind, I expect to be in place for five years. The consequence of that is that uh, what a really good promoter brings to me is the ability to lower his cost of capital or her cost of capital after I've already invested. If my average is a dollar, uh, and they're able to raise money at $3 rather than $2.25, they have limited my dilution. The advantage to me comes five years from now when we all sell, because I'm not particularly a trader. I'm much less interested in taking risks uh, to turn a $2.35 stock into a $3 stock after some sort of success. I'm much more interested in turning that $2.50 stock into a $10 stock. Uh, the consequence of that for me is that their promotional acumen is useful in terms of lowering their cost of capital, but isn't useful to me with my own position other than limiting my dilution. On that note, I've been frustrated with a position I have in an early stage Explore Co where the valuation is too low. And it's kind of almost insulting to me how low the valuation is and the enterprise value. Yes, we can talk about the 100 million plus market caps right now that are just speculation. But what is your perspective as a shareholder when management may be doing the things geologically slowly to move it forward, but they are doing a horrible job telling the market about their project and getting people excited about what they have? Well, for me personally, there's nothing I like better than that. Uh, I'll buy 9.9% .9 of the company. But what happened if you already have 9.9? Well, I'd probably be inclined to help them. Uh, a really good promoter with lousy assets is of less use to you than a lousy promoter with great assets. You can fix promoters. Uh, or you can take over some of the heavy lifting of promotion. You can't fix bad assets. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Uh, the market, uh, particularly a bull market like this, uh, uh, fixing perception, uh, freshening the impression, uh, is a much easier job than turning lousy rocks into good rocks. Rick, with all the feedback you get from listeners sending you their exploration companies, 
What more would you like to share based on the literally thousands of portfolios you've reviewed? Here's one. You get an unsolicited email from some website that isn't charging you and is giving you a sure thing uh, that's going to go from 10 cents to $3. Why would they do this? Just out of curiosity, they're not charging you for this. You read in the fine print that amalgamated moose past your minds uh, has paid a promotional fee of $250,000. If... um, If you don't know what the product is, you are the product. If somebody isn't charging you a commission or if they aren't supported on the face of it uh, by uh, declared sponsors, that is to say, if you get an unsolicited email, you and 10 million of your closest friends, um, it is almost guaranteed to be, uh, remember that technical phrase, bullshit. Uh, as I say, we looked at a company this year that had just shy of a million dollars in promotional expense and had spent less than $200,000 in the ground. And when I look at uh, these portfolios, I've looked at almost 30,000 of them now, by the way, the most common mistake that I see is portfolios littered with flimflam. Uh, people who have bought this absolutely outrageous um, narrative copy that makes 609% over the long weekend. I mean, give your head a shake. Um, (laughs) uh, The second most common mistake uh, is that people don't want to sell losers. They don't want to accept psychologically defeat. People will transfer in or submit to uh, uh, for grading lists of stocks that are 60 or 70 stocks long, uh, like their own private mutual fund. The idea that a speculator who has a life, let's just say that he or she has a job and a family, among other things, the idea that they can follow without a staff like I have 60 or 70 companies is a non-starter. The number of companies in your portfolio should be equivalent to the number of hours per month that you spend studying the stocks in your portfolio, one hour per stock per month. Uh, Very few people that have lives are willing to spend 70 hours a month studying their stocks. Uh, And yet, these people who understand what they own are loath to sell it at a loss. I've had maybe a 1,000 conversations, Bill, that go like this. I'll be talking to somebody with this laundry list of stocks, and I'll start in the A's. Let's call it amalgamated aardvark because that has A's. Uh, and so the, uh, the holder will say, well, Rick, what do you think of amalgamated aardvark? And I normally say, well, until this instant, uh, I was really blissfully unaware of the existence of amalgamated aardvark. I don't think about it at all. What do you think of it? Well, I don't know anything about it. Oh, well, you don't know anything about it. Why do you own it? Well, I can't sell it. Why can't you sell it? It has a bid. Well, I paid $2 for it, and it's selling for $0.50. And if I sell it, I'll lose $1.50. And I have to say, no, actually, you've already lost $1.50. The question is what you're going to do with the $0.50 remaining. If you're not willing to sell it for $0.50, then you ought to buy some more at $0.50. And if you don't have the courage to buy more at $0.50, you've answered the question yourself what it's worth. You've got to sell it. But I can't sell it. Why can't you sell it? Well, Bob Bishop recommended it. Bob Bishop's been retired for 10 years. Uh, <laughs> this is not a fundamental. Uh, <laughs> you, you follow me? Uh, and I, <laughs> I, I've had a lot of these conversations. Uh, a lot of these conversations. People don't understand that when the reason to own a stock goes away, the stock has to go away. Losing 30% is a whale of a lot better than losing 70%. And these stocks always return to their intrinsic value, which is almost always zero. When you follow the process of answering unanswered questions, when you get a no, you have to sell. Now, what most people do when they get a no is they rethink the question to give themselves psychological permission to still own this piece of junk. It's as though the geologists who spent their money slavishly drilled their worst hole first. 
What's the probability that a geologist drills his worst, his worst hole first? It's true that in certain circumstances, a good geologist will look at a couple of drill holes, reformulate their theory, use the data that they got from those holes and come up with a better thesis. But he better be able to explain that to me in terms that I can understand. <laughs> Rick, this has been a masterclass. I really appreciate your time and your candidness in sharing. So everybody that's listening to this point in this longest ever Mining Stock Education interview with you is serious. So tell us about the conference that you're running uh, this summer. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. What should right. investors expect? Uh, I now run uh, a conference uh, Vancouver Natural Resources Investment Symposium. I think it's been called now for 28 years. Originally, it was an Agora conference. They got bored of it. I took it over for Sprott. Uh, Sprott gave it to me as part of my severance. The conference, I humbly believe, is the finest high-end retail conference in natural resources. I'm confident enough in that statement that any of your listeners or subscribers who pay the entrance fee. By the way, it's virtual this year, not physical. Uh, it was virtual last year and it worked, thank God. Our Canadian friends uh, aren't letting us across the border, right? That's no, the they aren't. <laughs> they aren't letting us across the border. Uh, it's virtual, but anybody uh, who uh, signs up for the conference and pays the fees, if for any reason you don't think that you got your money's worth, email me and I'll give you a 100% rebound. Re refund, I'm sorry. Satisfaction guaranteed or your money refunded. Much better than you'll do with these penny dreadful stocks, by the way. Uh, to make it <clears throat> further worth people's while, whether they come to the conference or not, anybody who has liked the, con the content of this interview and would like to have their natural resource portfolio, including their penny dreadful uh, exploration portfolio, reviewed, go to a website, sproutusa.com forward slash rankings. Enter your natural resource stocks. Please, no technology stocks. Please, no crypto. Please, no pot or psilocybin stocks. Um, you know, I'm old enough that anyway, we'll leave that alone. Uh, just your resource stocks. I'll rank them one to 10, one being best, 10 being worst. And I will comment on individual issues where I think my comment might have value. Love to see you all at the conference. Uh, I'll take the risk out of it for you. Love to help you with your portfolio. By the way, my rankings are harsh. Also, by the way, it's annual report season right now. So I'm just working my old tail off. So if you don't get uh, your ranking back in four days or five days, uh, understand that I haven't forgotten about you. It's just that I'm working way harder than a retired guy should. You are. In fact, I brought that up with Ross Beatty when I interviewed him last week. I said, Rick's working 13 hours a week. How many are you working? He's like, I got chickens. <laughs> I have a garden and I know how beehives and I know how to relax. So I was like, Rick needs to Ross, take some of that Ross, medicine. Ross is flat lying. Uh, Ross failed retirement. <laughs> uh, he is going slow this moment, but I've known Ross my whole adult life. I've known him since university. Uh, and he will fail retirement twice. Uh, <laughs> there are only so many hours he can spend pulling weeds and getting stung by his bees. <laughs> He'll be back in the game, I guarantee you. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. Rick, Brian, okay. thank you for coming on today's show. Thanks, yeah. Brian. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000 and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for one returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. 
I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.